0: and welcome to the first ever podcast for the postmodern family. I'm Felipe. And I'm Lillian. And tonight we'll be discussing our childhood backgrounds uh, and leading up to adulthood and the point in which we first met. So that you get a feel for, you know, why we are the sort of people that show up on your YouTube videos and uh, why we make the jokes we do and the comments we do get a little bit more context. So... We'll begin with Lillian and uh, then move on to me. So why don't you get going and tell us a little bit about where your family's from and how you got to America.
1: Right. My parents, uh, my mom is from Taiwan and my father is from Hong Kong. And they um, are, their parents are from mainland China. So they fled mainland China uh, during the communist reign of Mao Zedong and they were fleeing and finding sanctuary, my father's side fled to Hong Kong, and my mother's side fled to Taiwan. So they were born in those respective countries and grew up in that culture, and um, so therefore my father grew up speaking three different languages because they were under British rule, so they Mm. learned English, British English, um, uh, Cantonese, which is the native to Hong mm-hmm. Kong, and Mandarin because the uh, because Hong Kong was a part of mainland China, and mm-hmm. that was the main language. And that was like kind of a sore
0: point for him, right? That he grew up under Western rule. Yes, absolutely. And he so didn't it must like be it. a sort of sore point that uh, you're living under British rule yet again. <laughs>
1: I wonder. I don't know. That's taken a bit far. Um. And then my mom um, she went so she grew up in Taiwan, she has six siblings, so she's one of five sisters and she has two brothers and my father, he has two siblings, one older sister one one younger brother and they met at Taiwan University, which is the best university in Taiwan and after they met, they started after several years of knowing each other, they started. Dating and then in the middle of that, before they got engaged or married, my mom decided to move to America to attend a graduate school in New York. And my where
0: her sister and other family were already
1: yes exactly so my um, my oldest aunt uh, she would be called Daima um, she we love Daima yeah <laughs> she kind of led the way I think to America, so she got her parents, her brothers and sisters, and everyone to come over, and my mom studied there at New York, and then also my father kind of followed her, and also got a graduate degree there, so they got married in um, in that town, and then found jobs nearby, and that's where I was born, mm-hmm. um, and then... 18 months later, my brother was born. So there was two of us. Mm -hmm. Um, And so my mom was a professor in the university and my dad was a engineering, um, a program analyst for computers. Mm -hmm. Um, And we we lived in that first town for 10 years Mm -hmm. before we moved because my mom lost her job. Mm -hmm. And she's convinced it had to do with Racism, actually, and I yeah. and I I just remember that as a young person. I haven't talked to her recently about that, mm-hmm. but she, um, she found another even better paying job, better school, mm-hmm. in um, across the state. So yeah. So
0: what, let's just touch a little bit upon what what it was like to grow up in the U.S. Um, as an immigrant family, and what yeah. and what impact that had on your cultural identity.
1: Right. So I grew up learning Chinese first, so we spoke Mandarin at home, and obviously they tried to teach me some English because we were living in America, but when they would teach me English, I would speak English with a Chinese accent. Mm -hmm. So my first language was Mandarin up until I went to kindergarten. When I started going to school, then I remember the children making fun of me because I had this Chinese accent when I spoke, and I quickly shed that accent, and so today... The voice you hear probably sounds to you like a white, blonde woman. Uh, Definitely not a Chinese person. (laughs) Um, In fact, our current lease agent was in contact with us for two years, only via phone or email. And for the first time we met a couple months ago, and she was surprised to see that I was uh, tall Chinese woman. Um, she, she was expecting she, a blonde. She told us that. Woman. Yeah, mm-hmm. she said I thought you were a white. I just imagine white and with blonde hair, long blonde hair, mm. and so thought that was funny. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: But that—that's actually what a lot of my childhood friends called me. They called me a Twinkie. Mm. Uh, What's that? So it's after a American junk food where it's white on the inside and it's yellow on the outside. Mm. Another way of saying that is a banana. I've heard that as well. Mm -hmm. So that I looked Asian, but I was completely whitewashed uh, American Mm -hmm. kind of on the inside. Yeah.
0: So did that have any, um, any challenges for your relationship between you and your family?
1: I think so. I mean, we didn't... My father really wanted us to be like Chinese, and and embrace that culture. They sent us to Chinese school every Saturday morning. Oftentimes, I was kicking and screaming and crying, not wanting to go because I wanted to stay home and watch cartoons. But... um... Reminds me of my daughter. And so, we though we went, I did not apply myself. I saw a lot of my peers were way more advanced, or they just were better at it than me, that I just didn't feel like I wanted to try because... I would rather try at something I feel like I'm good at. So I didn't really learn to read and write as well as I should have. And then I I feel like I also didn't appreciate the culture that my parents were trying to teach me because of the influence I had in in the American school. And I I just wanted to fit in with them and I felt like I wanted to be American. Mm -hmm. And so... I There was that tension there because my parents would often worry that we were becoming more too westernized mm-hmm. in our thoughts, in our because actions. Because there's a
0: difference between traditional Chinese culture and
1: absolutely culture. I mean, Western what are some culture... Of the main,
0: can you touch on the main West, two points that are really different?
1: I mean, the one ma- huge point is just the sexualization of humans, I think, in uh, America it's just highly sexualized. The television and... Mm-hmm. For example, I love to watch Taiwan dramas even today. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the Taiwan dramas still, you know, make it clear that having sex before marriage is wrong. And mm-hmm. and you should be shameful. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, if you get pregnant before getting married, mm-hmm. that it's not looked well upon. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they were worried about that. Um, especially since I showed, uh, a desire to, I liked boys basically when I was in kindergarten, yeah. I, I would be like, that's my boyfriend. And I thought it meant it was someone who I liked. But mm-hmm. so I was like, I have 13 boyfriends and they always mm-hmm. thought that was funny. And they, my cousins would make fun of me cause I was young. I didn't understand. But, mm-hmm. um, so that's probably the main thing is just the like l- loose kind of mentality yeah. with your, with that, mm-hmm. and so my parents impressed upon me. they said that they didn't you know they waited until after marriage, and that yeah. was um, that was a virtue that mm-hmm. they wanted to see happen in me. Mm-hmm. The second huge thing is filial piety, mm-hmm. so in Chinese culture, um bringing your family honor is the greatest virtue it's the greatest honor to do so Everything you do in life, you're thinking of honoring your parents and your your ancestors who have died previously. Mm-hmm. You don't want to bring them shame um, mm-hmm. because that shame is like everlasting. It kind of like echoes mm-hmm. in the uh, in eternity. So you
0: could say that in the west there's there's two aspects of that idea that are absent. First is um, respect for parents and and this and ancestors mm-hmm. one but then number two is this concept of shame as such. I yes. think in the, in the West, shame has sort of exited stage left, if you will.
1: <laughs> I guess so. Um, one like of it's the like it's wrong
0: to shame anyone
1: about. Yeah, it. exactly. In fact. Um, I think a lot of Chinese people will relate, but when you see your parents after, you, let's say you went to university and then you come back for the first time, they'll usually probably tell you that you've gotten fat. Like, they'll say it to your face, oh, you look fat. And it's not really an offensive thing to say as a Chinese person, it's just a matter of fact. But I think if you said that to the average American, they would get highly offended. and. And, w- and maybe have no shame and want to say, well, I don't think it's shameful to be this way, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And so that's just... Uh, beautiful yeah, um, mm-hmm. The body positivity movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so we grew up with that tension in the household. Mm-hmm. Trying to, f- I was trying to find my identity. Mm-hmm. And I've got to say, I didn't have a strong identity. And I also didn't have a g- good relationship with my father. So I tried to find myself in other people, especially other men. Mm -hmm. And And so
0: you said, did you mention that, um, so halfway through your childhood, your mom moved to another city. That's right. And your father sort of stayed back.
1: That's right. So So my mom, because she lost her job as a professor, um, and then found another one across the state, my father, who was at that point, you know, kind of middle-aged, had difficulty finding another job in that new city. So my brother and I moved with my mom because she's just the more maternal, you know, caring for children, and my father would come on the weekends and visit us. And unfortunately, because my father was the disciplinarian, that meant all the weekends I was being disciplined for all the bad things I did during the week when he wasn't there. And that, that found, I found that really difficult. So our relationship was unraveling, um, starting at, I mean, I was 10 at that time when we moved, but definitely by 16 I was rebellious in nature mm-hmm. and um sneaking out and things like that so um when we right before I went to university um I decided to go to the same university that my parents went to mm-hmm. um but right before I decided that I was sat down by my my pastor so my my mom was bringing my brother and I to church and um and so he, the pastor said, you know, you've been coming to church for this long. Why aren't you a Christian yet? And um, I forgot to mention that my father is very antagonistic towards Christianity. And all throughout our childhood, he was trying to teach us how Christianity is really stupid. <laughs> and it's for the weak-minded. It's for the weak-spirited people. And yeah. however, um, in comparison between my two parents, I felt like, my mom was happier and more calm and more peaceful. So there were many virtues to all the people I met at church. And I felt like maybe there's something there. Mm-hmm. So when my pastor asked me why I'm not a Christian yet, I said, well, I have too many questions. Mm-hmm. And he said, what are they? And I could only think of three and I asked them all and he answered them all mm-hmm. to satisfaction. And so then I thought, and then he asked, so what's stopping you now from becoming a Christian? And I said, nothing, I guess. And I, in the back of my mind, I thought, let's just try this out. If it's wrong, I'll just switch back and just say, you know, I just said that I would be a Christian. Um, But I did tell him, yes, I, you know, I'll accept Christ into my life. And so we prayed in his office and I went off to school for university. That first year I did nothing Christian really. Mm -hmm. Didn't read the Bible, didn't hang out with Christian people. And I must say I was a wreck. Like I think Emotionally and socially, my grades weren't even that good. Like they were good, but they could have been way better. Um, and so it wasn't until my second year where I I met some friends who were Christian and they confronted me on my lifestyle and challenged me to say, if you are calling yourself a Christian, if you accepted Christ, then. Why are you behaving this way? Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's something
0: that, in today's ages, I mean, in any context, almost, it's very difficult to do as a, as a friend to sort of sit someone down and say, "You know, I think x, y, and z are not right.
1: absolutely. Man. And you know if 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 no one did that to me, I just don't know where I would be. You know, i I feel like, I just had no idea. I didn't know that Christians were supposed to read the Bible. Mm -hmm. So I started reading the Bible. And that really changed my perspective on life and everything. And I felt like, Mm -hmm. for once, I felt like the purpose of my life and the identity that I was looking for could be found. Mm -hmm. So I felt... So you kind
0: of had basically like an identity crisis from childhood all the way up to this point, in a sense. Yes,
1: yes, exactly. Who am I? Who am I supposed to please? Mm -hmm. Right? There's so many people out there who am I supposed to live up to? Mm-hmm. Um, and what is my ideal standard of greatness? Yeah. So um, Christianity answered all of those for me mm-hmm. and really helped me in, in doing well in school, uh, doing well uh, for my recital. So I went to school for music education as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. I actually started out as a performance major, but my mom convinced me that that was the better way to go was to get some uh, music mm-hmm. education. Um, degree because then you can at least teach Mm -hmm. and so I did a duel it was kind of like a duel called music education with performance honors so
0: as you talk about this kind of like a challenging program can you um for our listeners who aren't living as immigrants in the west who are westerners and kind of it would be difficult for them to try to think what it's like to be an immigrant um can you can you talk about What influence being an immigrant in the U.S. had on the kind of work ethic and expectations on you, uh, career expectations, academic expectations Mm. that your parents laid on you? That's
1: right. So my parents were trying, they believe in education as the gateway to successful life. So they really pushed on us growing up before going to university that education was our number one priority, so therefore they didn't want us getting part-time jobs, they didn't want us spending too much time doing some sports or even music, and though those were important, they were all a part of making us well-rounded and looking good for the university schools, yeah, right? or
0: leap years, year-offs. Um,
1: None of, of that, no way. Yeah. So we went straight from graduating high school into university setting, and um and i had a full workload because i was doing that dual thing 20 credit hours was my minimum and a lot of people who go to college um uh take about 15 to 16 credit hours so i was maxing myself out i also was there because my mom because she is a professor uh was able to get um i was able to get a full free tuition so full ride um, the only thing I had to pay my first year was room and board. So that was $10,000. And after that, I became a resident advisor, and that paid for the rest of my room and board mm-hmm. uh, for the rest of the three years of my undergraduate degree. Yeah. So that means I got a four-year do- double kind of bachelor's degree
0: mm-hmm.
1: for 10000 And my mom and my dad were happy to pay that for me. They didn't ask me to pay mm-hmm. it back. So the... Uh, you know you've heard the term "tiger mom" and things like mm-hmm. that. I think it's I think it's true that there's such a high expectation mm-hmm. for doing well in school. Yeah. Um. And so, for example, I remember I think I was in fourth grade. I got my first B, mm-hmm. and they were showing me my my report card and said, "Do you know what B stands for?" B stands for bad. <laughs> and <I was> like, <laughs> so
0: for our, our UK listeners, the, the American grading scale is A is best, B is next, C is like middle average, average D is you're like near failing and F is fail. Yes,
1: they skip E for some reason. And then A is usually uh, out of 100, 90 to 100. So mm. that would be A. And then so the Bs are 80s, yeah. Cs are 70s. So
0: you were you got your first 80s you know, and they said that's bad.
1: Yeah. yeah. And so from then I knew, okay, the standard was I've got to get at least an A minus, right? Yeah. <laughs> um So in university, thankfully I did it re- very well. And um I do attribute a lot of that peacefulness that I had during university to mm-hmm. my, my Christian walk. Um But uh that was that. So I, I was there for four years and then, I applied to master's degrees, mm-hmm.
0: and and as you get into that, so the this has implications for some of the some of the videos that we've done in which you say you've given up a career. So this was all down the road a path of establishing a career. You were mm-hmm. career minded and career driven.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I. So after. So I that's finished...
0: definitely is that definitely a Western trait and not a um, an Eastern trait in in the traditional family.
1: I'm not sure because a lot of my cousins have pursued high career, Mm -hmm. um, accolades and are are doctors now. And Mm -hmm. so, and they're, and they're female, right? It's Mm -hmm. not like it was just for the men. Yeah. I think they saw the West as an opportunity for anybody to make Mm themselves. Yeah.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So then you went into your uh, graduate program.
1: Yeah, so I I applied to many different schools um in masters and also for doctorate programs in music and choral conducting. Mm-hmm. And once again where I was going, they offered me a full tuition free ride to stay with them another 2 years mm-hmm. and well, they you would got your give me degree. yes, mm-hmm. and they would give me two masters degrees one in music education and one in choral conducting which was my passion at the time so um i feel like i i did very well i got a 4.0 i think most people though in masters programs do and um that's when in the middle of then was when i when i met you mm.
0: in the middle of your masters program yes mm.
1: between those two years
0: yes I was only uh, driving a bus, and uh, we ran into each
1: other. No.
0: <laughs> so, okay. So, that that's good. That's where we'll, we'll um, touch now and, and begin, I guess, my story.
1: Right. So, is that everything that we wanted to cover? Yes, that cover? is. Okay, it's... good. All right. So, um, so, Felipe, tell us about your parents and where they're from and how you got to America.
0: Yeah, so... Um... My race is uh, what's called uh, Hispanic or Latin. Um, sometimes we say Latino. The, the racial forms are complicated. They, they don't usually get this question correct. And they're
1: not on the forms here in the UK. Yeah. So
0: usually I have to fill in Caucasian. Actually. White other or something. White other, yeah. <laughs> so Hispanic is, is just a blend of um, European with Native Americans. So Europeans who conquered Latin America interbred with the Native Americans.
1: Specifically Spanish Europeans. Specifically
0: Spanish Europeans, yes. So the New Spain, basically. Mm -hmm. The descendants of the mixtures of New Spain with the Natives. And um, my descendants come from, I think it's like early 19th century, when Nicaragua was under Spanish dominion. Um, uh, A soldier uh, looking for work, I think, um, decided to come and work for the municipal government somewhere in Nicaragua. And uh, there's still a village in in Spain, that carries the family name, and that's where he was from, and he came over to Nicaragua and settled, and started the family, and that's on my father's side. Uh, On my mother's side, it gets a little foggier because of other circumstances of um, family abandonment on that side, but um, nonetheless, that's where we're from. Nicaragua is uh, right almost, it's like two countries north of Panama, if you know where the Panama Canal is. Um, You'll have Panama, Costa Rica, and then Nicaragua very volcanic, rainforest type place, hot, super hot, super humid, so not like um, southern England at all. So, anyway, um, like yourself and your family, my parents found themselves in the U.S. fleeing a communist revolution in their homeland, so it seems like, you know, in the thick of the Cold War, 60s and 70s, you had this, you know, cat and mouse game, and, and the USSR setting up puppet governments and the U.S. setting up puppet governments wherever they could. So the USSR sort of, um, festered a revolution in Nicaragua. And because, um, on my father's side, his, his father was a, my grandfather was a major in the army and the head of the security services. When that government got overthrown, um, our family name became, um, sort of a noose around our necks, it became a danger to ourselves, so actually my grandfather was holed up in a Guatemalan embassy, in a foreign embassy in Nicaraguan soil, um, this is on your father's side, this is on my father's side, Yes, yeah, so my, my paternal grandfather, um, in the war, they lost the war, my, my grandfather's side, and, and he fled into an embassy, and that's where he was held up for, I think, several years until he was released, but, my, my maternal grandfather, my mom's father, um, when I was born, I was born in Colombia, that's where my parents were studying. And um, as this war is raging, my, my maternal grandfather said, You know, I think this, this uh, situation here is too dangerous. And because he was a major businessman that did major business with the US, he was on good terms with the embassy, um, good trusty relationship. And um, w- was able to secure visas for my family, um, and upon arriving, we applied upon arriving to the US. we applied for um, we, pl- we applied for uh, asylum. Refugee, asylum, and it was eventually granted. But yeah, so we ended up being uh, moving to Florida when I was about eight months old, fleeing um, war, the destruction of um, my family's country and my, the country where I came from basically, because Colombia was just born by a circumstance, but my culture and my, my DNA is Nicaraguan. So we, we go to the the U.S., to Florida as um, as refugees, in a sense, fleeing war, and that's where we settle. And um, unlike in your story, where you you say you felt like this tension between becoming American and or staying Chinese, for us, because there was so much family that came with us, it was not just... My parents, it was my aunt, um, two other uncles and aunts, um, my grandparents. Um, not some of my grandparents came. So we had a, a big family nucleus that was in Florida. And what that meant is that we, all the time we spent as children outside of school was with family. Um, we didn't as kids, we didn't have friends that we hung out with after school. Not really that much at all So we would go everywhere with our family It was kind of like I don't know if you've ever seen um, The movie Casino And uh, it, the mobsters talk about you know This sort of community that they have In which they would spend no time With anyone outside of that community It was kind of like that We spend no time with anyone outside the family And what that meant Is that we were stamped with The Latin American identity Even though my fir- So my first language was Spanish I learned it um, and even though at school I spoke English and eventually English became my main language, um, nonetheless, when you come home, it's the Latin American identity. It's this, uh, it's a patriarchy. It's the traditional sort of um, close-knit family, family first, sacrifice, um, friends are last, really, when it, if it comes between family and, and friends. So, you know, generally when and we'll get to this later when, I get to, when we talk about when I get to university, but when I did get to university, it was, and I started interacting with people who were legitimately Western, um, for the first, for really for the first time without my family, it was quite a culture shock. But anyway, so we, um, we grew up in, in Florida. It was two of us, my brother, he's four, um, a few years younger than I am, and I grew up watching um, my family model adulthood, um, to us and us trying to emulate that. So I was never, unlike you, I was not an excellent student, um, by any means in elementary, middle or high school. I was, um, I was kind of a slacker, an underachiever.
1: So you were a C student.
0: I was a C student. Oh. Um, and there, I think there were probably some D's in there too. Oh gosh. Um, I just, I think this happens to a lot of boys. Um, um, school is kind of uninteresting it um, it appeals to the sort of person that would want to sit down, that can sit down for a long period and of time. And who
1: wants to please the yeah. teacher. Who want to
0: please others. And though.
1: I don't know if you had that in you. Do you yeah, want to please the teacher? I mean, I teacher? think every
0: every young person wants, uh, to some extent, wants to please um, the authority figure. Mm-hmm. But um, but um, as far as sitting down all that time and not being active mm-hmm. and running around, mm-hmm. I think that's inherently a boy quality and that's where schools fall down, I think. But anyway, I just was disconnected. I was just not interested, spaced out, thinking about other things, disconnected. So, kind of a mediocre student. And then when I went to what we call middle school, which um, is um, I was probably I was eleven. Um, from eleven years old, I by chance because I had in my slackerness I had um, waited too long to pick my elective for sixth grade. And um, the only one that had a spot was music. Um, so it was because of my slackerdom that I ended up in music, which transformed my life. But um, my dad uh, you know, was a musician always since he was a young man. He had a, a band that transcribed Beatles songs and played them in Spanish.
1: And that's how he learned English, was listening to music. Is that yeah, right? Yeah.
0: So when um, I, I like the story, it's really funny when I don't know if it's true or not, but that's the way he tells it. When we got to the U.S., and my mom spoke some English. She actually was sent to the language training center in Oxford and spent, I think it was a year uh, in Oxford learning English. 16
1: years old. Imagine that. Um,
0: It was, I think it was 18. No, was it 16? She says it was 16. Right. So, she came and learned um, British English, Um, and so she, she had some of that, but my father had learned no English. So... He was faced with this challenge, and what he did was he transcribed country songs, and the way he says it is that if I aimed to replicate the country accent, um, that's like shooting for the stars. So if I come short, if I come short of that, I'll be all right, basically.
1: Like southern countries, is that what you yeah, meant? like southern
0: country song. Yeah, so yeah, for our our um, European and, and British listeners. When we say country music in the U.S., that means that twangy, like... Cowboy. Like, yeah. Back home, Alabama, kind of twangy kind of stuff. So he, I wonder why he
1: thought that that was the gold standard. <laughs> I
0: have no idea, but that is the gold standard. That's the way he tells it. And uh, But yeah, he, he felt it was... While he was Latin American and he passed on the Latin American values and ethics, he still loved America. He was like, he su- su- still is super passionate about the opportunity that he was given and the success he had um, experienced and everything that happened to us as he- as children- his children, in terms of the opportunities we were given and the way we were able to succeed. So very patriotic. And so...
1: So you took after him in music, in his in love music. for music. I
0: did, yeah. And... Um, so then I started my musical career as an 11 year old playing trombone because it was the cheapest instrument to rent and you know we being not very well to do um, I wanted to play saxophone but that was too expensive I think it was like two times the rent mm-hmm. um, so here's this instrument that has a slide and um, you know it was kind it's of a weird.
1: great instrument
0: it, well in retrospect yeah it's a fabulous it's the best instrument but at the time I was like man this is really disappointing <laughs> so um Again, just continued in my mediocrity and um, didn't really do anything much until, you know, one time I was, one day I was shamed by asking, being asked in class to play a chromatic scale, a two octave chromatic scale, and I couldn't do it. And I you thought, couldn't even
1: start on the right note, I like the first even note. Start on
0: the first note when they asked, they said, play, you know, your two octave chromatic scale starting from B flat. I didn't know what B flat was <laughs> on my instrument. <laughs> so, so I just made like a noise like... <laughs> <laughs> And um, and that was and went it. home
1: and you practiced. I then I
0: went home and I yeah I became diligent because I felt ashamed, mm-hmm. um, kind of like you were saying about your experience in university and being you know being told to be ashamed of the way you were living. Mm-hmm. Um, shame is a very powerful friend um, to, to to everyone. I think very powerful weapon to improve. So I felt very very ashamed and um, went home practiced my my butt off. And I think it was like three or four months later, they did the same exercise, and I was able to do it. And, um, you know, then I got placed into the higher-level bands and did well with that. And my band instructor in middle school, um, she's amazing. I I love her to pieces. I remember crying when I left that school. She was such an important figure in my life. She said, you know, there's this um, special school in in, um, downtown that that is dedicated to the arts. Um, it, had, it it. teaches students to be better musicians, who want to be musicians, but, uh, artists, sculptors, dance, all the arts. If you want to be any um, professional in those um, disciplines, then you can go to the school. And they.
1: And they, it was free? It was a part of...
0: It's a free school, yes. It's one of these things they call magnet school, mm. which is a specialty school. So they have science and technology But you school. have to audition. You have to audition. You have to be accepted through mm-hmm. a process, so... So I had to prepare a few pieces and know learn um, two octaves on all my major scales, mm. and if you wanted to be really special, two octaves on all your minor scales. Um, and so I went to my audition, and I just remember my father saying, "You know, this is the first time you're facing the world by yourself, and um, it's very scary for me." Um, you know, you know, like a, this is the kind of like Latin American family man that this is the kind of experience and, and feelings that he would have. You have your your young boy, who's I think I was. I must have been, um, 13 or 14 and being thrust into, um, an assessment Mm -hmm. without, you know, his parents, without family around. So I was before a panel of four judges and, um, played my thing and got accepted. And that's where I went to high school. And, um, it was the best experience of my life. It taught me to be a professional, Mm -hmm. um, in character, to Mm -hmm. be punctual, to be diligent and, um, I thought I would do music for the rest of my life um, after that experience but it was um, it was you know make no joke the, the the academics were no joke either though even though it was a concentration of music or art whatever you had to do so yeah. they
1: the academics were from the nearby college right no, the arts were from the nearby oh, college I see.
0: but the academics were high school academics okay, but you okay. still had ap you know they advanced courses and everything but because the the arts classes were from college the uh, university level, mm-hmm. um, the academic side felt like they had to live up to that mm-hmm. standard. Basically, mm-hmm. be college as well. So,
1: how were your grades?
0: So initially, I you know I'm I can I tend to be very single minded. So if I have a specific goal, I tend to discard everything else. So I enter this music magnet school and I think I'm going to be a musician. So I don't spend a lot of time with my academics. <laughs> um, I continue my disinterest. I
1: C's. continue being like
0: C student. Um, my first year or so in there. And then, um, as I um, learn to love physics and mathematics, and I have relationships with my academic teachers, science teachers, and teachers, you know, one of my math teacher, um, he, you know, I love him too. He he used to have the saying called um, "artsy fartsies." All you guys are artsy fartsies, and are going to end up being burger flippers because. You know, the percentage of people that aspire to be artists who end up being well-paid professional artists is very slim, very slender. Mm -hmm. So you have to be like a mega superstar to make it.
1: So he was reminding you guys to be practical. To do your academics, basically, Uh, as
0: a backup. Because you may or may not make it as an artist. So that sort of woke me up and said, you know, maybe I shouldn't put all my eggs in, in one basket. Even though that basket was incredible. I mean, I made... Um, first chair in the National Honor Band in the whole country. So for that particular year, I was the top trombone player of my age group in the whole country. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, I'm definitely going to do this. But that advice stuck with me and my love for physics and math sort of developed. So I made a very difficult decision in my last year after touring universities with a friend of mine um, who was definitely going into engineering Mm-hmm. Um, to to make the practical decision and do engineering.
1: Wow. So you just didn't even audition for any music programs? No, I didn't. Wow. Um,
0: I, I said, you know, I I don't want, well, part, you know, part of me was like, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to audition and risk rejection. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was just minor. Quit I, it while you're ahead. <laughs> it, was, it was, yeah, quit on top. Kind of like <laughs> Michael Jordan when he retired after three championships <laughs> in a row. He said, you know, I'm going out on top. I said, yeah, I'm going to go on on top. I was in the best, I was the number one player in the country, so let me now go on and do something different. <laughs> and, um, I went to university and it, it wasn't a top, it wasn't a top, like a Ivy or a top 10 university. It was like maybe top 50. How did
1: you even get in? Did you pull your grades up? Student.
0: yeah. So my, my last two years in high school, when I started realizing, you know, I better do something academic, I, I applied myself and, um you know, got straight A's in several semesters, and, um, it's, it's like in every situation in my life, it's like there are switches that turn on. When I, um, when I started playing trombone well for the first time, my band instructor said, you know, it, I I didn't see that coming. It's like you suddenly blossomed, and it it was the same thing in high school. When I switched the switch, flipped the switch and said I need to do academics, people were like, yeah, I didn't expect that. I didn't think you cared or bothered or wanted Mm -hmm. to do it, so... I would come early um, to do more physics than I would have to because physics was my first class in the day, and I would come half hour early and work with the physics teacher to mm. get ahead and do more stuff. so that was how exciting it was. so I went to um, I went to a university that you know mercifully accepted me <laughs> despite my sort of I had half good grades and half you know mediocre grades, which ended up being sort of maybe average overall. Um, with a a good a a generous financial aid package, not based on merit based on need mm-hmm. and um and 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 I went to university and i thought another flip switch is that you know I have a fresh start here i i you know I joked about and was a mediocre student for all my life up to this point, but if i 'm really going to make it, I have to do something and so from day one at university um I applied myself and I graduated second in my class. Four years of a rigorous program on engineering and mathematics, double major. I graduated second in my class. And this astonished the whole family. You know, they had all seen me as a mediocre student. And uh, to say nothing of the fact that my family was fragmenting just like two or three years before I left for university. My parents were uh, splitting and I was seeing less of, of them because of it, and I felt like I had to get out of dodge because this situation, the, the family unit that had, you know, supported me and been my foundation for my whole childhood was falling to pieces, and I thought, this is hurting me really bad, so I guess I better set some other foundation, mm-hmm. and that foundation is gonna be me. I'm mm-hmm. gonna, it's gonna be all on me. So I went to the university and thinking, this is it, I'm parting with my past, this is a new beginning, and I, I, I smashed it um, mm-hmm. uh, for those four years. And because of that, um, as a, I was able to get into any graduate school I wanted um, with full money to go mm-hmm. into um, doctoral programs. So I applied at, you know whether it be Princeton, Caltech, Stanford, um, you know, all the best engineering schools, Georgia Tech, University of Chicago. Um, so I got into all the schools I wanted to get into for the you know and it was the first time I had ever achieved, academic success um, in the admissions program, you know, so I did that, and um, it was a a moment in life in which I felt like I was at the peak performance, peak game, I was on top of the world, I owned it, I had decided to do X, Y, and Z, and it was so challenging, and I did it, Um, and I was going to these, you know, graduate school interviews, and and they were, you know, falling over themselves saying, you know, we can offer you this package, and you can study under this professor and that professor and it was an experience that I'd never had before and so I thought you know I ruled the world and um I because I departed from my family in a sense I said I turned my back on my family because that was fragmenting um the identity that that you know the fact my family in fact was was holding my identity anchored I was my, my identity yeah, was anchored with my family your
1: undergraduate program you weren't Getting sucked into all the partying and all the drinking. Yeah, so I It was mentioned... still, like, instilled in you, probably, yeah. t- that that's not your identity.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mentioned earlier, it was like a, an incredible culture shock, university was. Because, you see, I had never seen such debauchery, such, like, getting um, drunk, uh, you know, every mm-hmm. night, um, mm-hmm. doing drugs, and hanging out late, and, and not doing your work, and... I mean, I mean, I was a mediocre student by decision, because I wanted to do other things, but other worthwhile things, I thought, but these people were doing other things like those things, and I thought, this is very foreign to me, I, I gotta get out, I can't relate to that, and so um, I moved on to graduate school at the top of my game, um, but I left off that whole family ethic and traditional ethic that I was given in regards to the way I lived as a man in terms of my relationship with women.
1: So you started to treat yourself like you were a man in graduate school. Like you thought, okay, well now I'm, I've grown up now. I've proved myself. Yeah. And now I'm going to live how I want to live. Correct. And so it was somewhat different than your previous four years. Yeah, so I started
0: shedding um, my identity in some sense. Elements, core elements of my identity started peeling off. This sort of um, you know hum you know like a humble respect for women and and uh, uh, a virtuous view of women sort of sort of I said you know I'm just gonna have I'm gonna sow my wild oats I'm gonna do as I please I'm gonna live the life of a man as as the West shows it mm. and um, what about my,
1: your academics did they suffer at all No, my that?
0: academics didn't suffer. I thought you know I I kept at that. And um, But inside, my, my emotional life mm. was um, a disaster. I slowly um, destroyed my inner life mm-hmm. um, by the things that I did. Trying mm-hmm. to pursue happiness in the way that I did. Mm-hmm. And it really comes down to that I thought I viewed myself as a god, basically. Mm-hmm. As a demigod. And uh, I could do anything. And so, ra- you know, destroying my inner life with the things that I was doing is what eventually... Gave me the intellectual permission to consider Christianity. And I haven't mentioned it all up to this point, but while my mom's side was Christian and I was brought to church as a boy, my my dad in my childhood was not Christian. And he would, um, and was like yours, antagonistic to Christianity. (laughs) But
1: he was the stronger role model of your life. He was the stronger role
0: model. He was the one we looked up to to, Mm -hmm. to emulate. And so I adopted that atheism. I was like a rabid. Um, Ayn Rand
1: lover.
0: Ayn Rand lover. I thought I was, you know, I had the intellectual backing. I understood reality. Mm-hmm. I was a man of science. I knew philosophy. Mm-hmm. I could argue Christians out of their, you know, out of their socks. I could argue, I could do anything. And so... You were
1: doing publications, articles in yeah, the objectivism. Yeah, I, I Objectivism. Argued,
0: yep, I argued against theists um, mm-hmm. in print and in forums and mm-hmm. things. I was... I was a lion for the cause of atheism, mm-hmm. and um, so at that it was it was that moment in which God chose to to break me down and say, "You know what you, you're not a god, you don't know everything, mm-hmm. and you need to give this a chance. you need to consider it intellectually and so when he broke my heart, um, I was because of the things I was doing mm-hmm. it's not that I all of a sudden I fell into the arms of some emotional comfort. Mm-hmm. That Christianity was.
1: It was I, that you were realizing you are not a god. In yes. fact, the things that you were pursuing weren't working out. Yes, they were. You were working trying. Out. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so I thought, let me intellectually consider this, and I, it, I didn't blindly, emotionally fall into mm-hmm. Christianity. Mm-hmm. I had to still submit it to some level of rigorous thought, mm-hmm. because after all, I was still a man of science.
1: So after you went to you went to Stanford, is that right? Yes. And. For how many for,
0: years? For a couple of years for my master's, and then I came back to the university where I did my undergrad mm-hmm. um, for a PhD because my my life was in crisis um, in California. Mm-hmm. That's where it really peaked mm-hmm. in crisis, and I was running away from that crisis and back into a safe space, uh, back to a place where I have tasted success and had great mm-hmm. success, and so that's where I came back, and. It was there in my life in pieces where I was beginning to put it back together. Or God was really beginning to put it back together. As I tried to struggle through, you know, is there a God? Um, Is Christ his son? Is it reasonable? Is it rational to accept these things? And it was in the beginning of saying yes to those questions that we met. Mm -hmm. And, And so you were kind of an experienced Christian and I was a newborn babe. In the faith,
1: just trying to feel it out to see if it's real,
0: to see if it's if it's legit. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I must say to to all listeners who think that um, the Christianity is an impoverished system for um, for the foolish, with no depth and no sophistication, you're I mean, you're sorely mistaken, as I was. And to the you know, I have not diminished my intellectual capacity. I have not. Um, become less thoughtful and reasonable in in this new walk mm-hmm. that I've achieved in fact it's been it's been more mm-hmm. so so that's it basically and that's where we met we met um, I, you know we believe by by God's hand um, by chance yes
1: because the the undergraduate school university that you went to was the same as mm. this thing you went back to it so mm. and so we would have should have crossed paths in mm. the six, five years that I was there, at least, yes. before meeting you, yeah. yeah,
0: so, um, that's it, I mean, we've gotten to our point where we've met, and, um,
1: so th- this is the end of our first po- podcast, and I believe you guys could subscribe to our podcast, is that right?
0: That's right, so do, if you like what you heard, what you, uh, have heard, um, and you want to hear more, we're gonna have more episodes, uh, I'm not quite sure what the level of frequency is, I think I'm shooting for. At least once a week, um, if not more. But um, we'll um, what we'll try to do here is give you a sense of uh, a, a more intimate, inside sense of who we are, um, and I think it's going to be really exciting. I'm really excited about it. I know I like to talk, and um, and well, of course
1: like, he's always just dragging me behind. I'm like, okay, let's okay, we'll yes, do it. <laughs> yes, yes.
0: So it's been a pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast, and. Um,